legacy is not so much about me bequeathing my charisma, you know, such as it is, to my successor, but it's really what's the body of content or what's the, the services or the products or sort of the essence of what the company is. Can I give that to somebody else? And I, a lot of people think that legacy is really important, like they want to be remembered. Here's reality. You're going to be forgotten in two generations. Well, hey there. If we have not yet met, my name is Alex Judd. I'm the founder of Path for Growth, and this is the Path for Growth podcast. Now, as a business, we exist to help impact-driven leaders step into who they are created to be so that others may benefit and God may be glorified. And this podcast is just another iteration of how that mission comes to life. It was a handful of months ago now that I started having a quarterly lunch with a man that has become an incredible friend, mentor, and really just a role model that I deeply look up to. Many of you probably know who Michael Hyatt is. He is a leadership expert, a business thought leader, and really an authority on the topic of personal effectiveness, productivity, and growth. And he has been, and his content has just been an inspiration to me for years and years and years. So the fact that he's willing to sit down and have this quarterly lunch where he tries to eat while I simultaneously grill him with questions is just such a gift to me. And I've learned so much, but it was a couple months ago now that we got onto some topic and I don't even remember what the question I asked him was, but he started going into this whole idea that he had clearly thought a lot about on the leadership strategy of Jesus. And he explained that it was a blog post that he had written years ago. And it's a topic that he's deeply passionate about. And he almost went into teaching mode and just laid out all these principles and concepts and tactics and practices that he has clearly researched and thought about and applied scriptural lens to. And it was just fascinating. Fascinating, but was what was also so cool is just how energized he was by it. And I was like, oh my gosh, I would love to share this exact conversation with people. And so I asked him, I said, would you be willing to talk about this on our podcast? And he said, yes, I love sharing about this stuff. And so I am just so beyond excited to share this conversation with you because his content on this is so rich. Now, you know where we stand at Path for Growth and on this podcast. I'm never going to tell you what to believe, but I'm also not going to ignore what we believe. And I am a Christian. I am a Christ follower. I believe that Jesus Christ was the son of God. Here's the deal. If you don't believe that, that's totally okay. And we want this to be a place where you feel welcomed, where you feel supported, where you feel encouraged, where you feel intellectually challenged. And I'm so grateful that you choose to be on this growth journey with us. But I believe that this episode is applicable regardless of what you believe. And here's why I think that's the case. Almost all scholars, whether they are Christian or non-Christian, agree that you cannot, with intellectual honesty, think that Jesus did not exist as a man. Now, whether he was the son of God and savior of the world is a different discussion about your beliefs. But most scholars say that you cannot, with intellectual honesty, disagree that he did exist on this earth. And if you accept that to be true, then it's worth noting that this is a guy who existed over 2,000 years ago that billions of people are still talking about, which means that we cannot deny that he clearly had influence, which means that he was a leader. And what Michael does so powerfully in this conversation is he lays out some of the paradoxical principles that Jesus relied on to make the impact that he did. And this all starts, and this all becomes incredibly practical the minute that you as a leader start thinking about the topic of succession. So one of the biggest issues that a lot of leaders face is the issue of succession. Hmm. And it's important in any context, certainly as people grow older, they need to think about you know, who they're going to leave their company with and who's going to succeed them. And I've seen lots of churches, lots of business organizations do this poorly. And a lot of times it stems from sort of a leader's sense of, I don't know if it's immortality or if it's denial, but they just kind of want to think that they don't have to plan for the future. Maybe they're going to live forever, or maybe they just don't want to face the uncomfortable reality that, you know, whether they die or, you know, a medical emergency takes them out, or they just decide to move on. They got to think about succession. And when I used to run a big public company, 
this was the board's number one concern was how can we provide business continuity so that if something happens to the CEO, we still got a viable company. I, I think that rings so true for people. And a lot of times people use the word legacy. And I think legacy can almost be the, the positive, the positive idea of what's, what's the impact that I'm leaving behind. But, but just as much, it seems like a lot of times it's not just what are you leaving behind? It's making sure that you actually have something to pass on that isn't just tied to you. Because it, it seems like a lot of the data that we see is that businesses revolve around this one charismatic visionary personality. And when that personality goes away, so does the business. Yeah, so true. I mean, we've seen examples again and again and again where this happens. And there's this, there's a study of 500 companies that the, the, the intent of this, the, the study was to see what happens when the founder dies. Hmm. And one of the things that they found in the studies was that sales drop off by 60%. Now imagine that that's catastrophic for those companies. The founder dies, the people that are working in the company, they're in good faith. They're working hard. The founder dies and sales drop off by 60%. That means that most of those companies are going to end up bankrupt or, you know, taking on water in a serious way. Another issue is that 20% of the companies are absolutely dead, bankrupt within two years. So it's kind of like when the, when the founder's vision and passion disappears, decline or death are the result. So if we're going to avoid those statistics, we've got to be intentional about thinking through succession. You mentioned the word legacy, and definitely there's got to be something to pass on. One of the best people to do this, in my estimation, although he's controversial, was Steve Jobs. Mm. You know, he left a legacy of amazing products and the tech press when he died back when I can't remember what it was, 2010, the tech press thought there's no way that Tim Cook can keep up that legacy because Steve was so charismatic and he was so winsome and he was so such a good presenter and spokesperson for that brand publicly. But that wasn't the secret to Apple's success. The secret was basically in the systems, the protocols, and the products that they put together over Steve's tenure. And Tim took that to completely new heights. He did, you know, the growth under his leadership was exponentially more than the growth under Steve's leadership. Mm -hmm. So you're exactly right. Legacy is not so much about me bequeathing my charisma, you know, such as it is, to my successor. But it's really what's the body of content or what's the, the, the services or the products or sort of the essence of what the company is. Can I give that to somebody else? And I'll, I'll tell you another thing that's important, Alex. A lot of people think that legacy is really important, like they want to be remembered. Here's reality. You're going to be forgotten in two generations or less. And unless you're somebody that's, you know, at the level of Gandhi or Jesus, or JFK, or C.S. Lewis. No, people are not, I mean, just all you got to do is ask yourself, what are the names of my great-grandparents? You have to struggle for a minute to think about it. <laughs> yeah. Push that back one generation, your great-great-grandparents, and you probably can't even give us their names. So you're going to be forgotten. But what you give in terms of the lives that are changed, in terms of the principles, the lifestyle, your values, that's what can be passed on. And that's where our focus needs to be. So when you think of succession and legacy through that lens, first of all, that's a pretty harsh reality that you just dumped on us. That's a pretty I know, I that. bucket of cold ice water. But when you think when you think of succession and legacy through that lens, how does that change the way you view success as a leader, Michael? Yeah, I, I really view success as the transformation that happens in the lives of the people that are closest to me. Mm. And it's a, it's a completely different model than what we see today. And so, you know, one of the things that, that I look at, you know, for my inspiration is Jesus. 
And he was arguably the greatest leader of all time. And the reason I can make that claim is that here we are 2,000 years later after his death and resurrection still talking about it. And he still has a sizable following, yeah. you know, maybe a third of the planet. So that's a pretty successful movement by anybody's standards. But he did not do what most leaders do. Now, what's really interesting, Alex, is that in the book of Galatians, Paul says that Jesus came in the fullness of time. And when I first read that, I thought, that doesn't really make any sense. I mean, if I was God, and I was going to send my only begotten son into the world because I wanted to get the message out, and I would think, okay, when would be the best time to do that? Mm. Well, I would think it would be when humans developed things like television <laughs> or radio or the internet because or social media because that amplifies the message. It makes it easier to get the message out. Now, if Jesus' motive was reach or breadth, in other words, if he wanted to reach the most people possible initially, then he had the wrong strategy. Hmm. And he didn't come in the fullness of time. He probably came at the worst time possible. <laughs> you know, there was, there was no technology for communication, you know, other than, you know, maybe writing something down and passing it through a career. That was it. But his strategy was not breadth. It was depth. Hmm. Most modern leaders focus on the many. Jesus focused on the few. And so primarily, he focused on the 12. But kind of when I look at the leadership strategy of Jesus, which again, I think is totally countercultural, there's kind of five aspects of it. So five circles of influence, if you will. Mm -hmm. So can I kind of go th through these with you? Yeah, I think that would be awesome. Before we jump into those five circles of influence, though, we have people from all faith backgrounds that listen to this podcast. And what we always say is, is we love, you know, regardless of what you believe, we're, we're grateful to have you listening. And at the same time, we're not going to ignore what we believe. But I'd love just to hear your thoughts on why Jesus, why Jesus is a noteworthy figure to look at regardless of your faith, just through the lens of leadership. Why is, is he someone that, take spirituality out of the picture, why is he someone just from a historical perspective that it's like, man, there's probably something we can learn there? Well, I think that almost everybody recognizes who has read his teachings in the New Testament, that there's something there that's transcendent, something that stands the test of time whether that's value, values or the parables or just his, the moral code that he has espoused. You know, it's informed Western civilization, even much of Eastern civilization, because Christianity, of course, you know, is not only a phenomenon in the West, but it's a phenomenon all through Russia and into the, into the East. So it's, it's impacted our culture. And, you, you know, admittedly, not always good, but I don't think that's uh, a discredit to Jesus, but probably a discredit to his followers. You know, we don't always get it right. You know, we have to admit that. But I think that his influence has been far and wide. So I think that's, that's the main reason. One of the things I would say also that is unique about Jesus is that his teachings not only motivated to people to give their lives for him, but to transform the world. And in fact, in the book of Acts, it says that the, the disciples, when they're appearing before a magistrate there, he says, the men who have turned the world upside down have come here also. So within a generation, they basically turned the known world upside down. And I think that's kind of the, the test of leadership. It's not what you can do. It's not what happens in the people that you immediately lead, but what happens several generations removed from you that really is the measure of your impact as a leader. 
You already kind of touched on this too, but kind of once you say, okay, he's someone worth looking at. He's someone worth studying in that capacity because you you can't argue with the guy's results. He got results regardless right. of whether you uh, agree with the spirituality side or not. And uh, I know you were already going this way, but the principle w- that you kind of articulated was focus on the few, not on the many, which is so maybe we agree with in principle, but our actions and our thoughts don't always agree with that. And then I love I've heard you teach on this before, and I'll never forget the the time that we had lunch and you started talking about this. And I thought you were just going to start standing up and start preaching because you got so excited about it. But the the, the five circles of influence and how counterintuitive this is. So can you share a little bit on that, Michael? Yeah, I would say that successful leaders today, just kind of put this in the cultural context of today, Mm -hmm. most successful leaders today are really focused at speaking on big conferences, getting big social media followings, publishing best-selling books, you know, writing successful blogs, having successful podcasts, getting covered by major media, all that stuff. That was not Jesus' strategy. In fact, I would argue that he was a publicist nightmare because very (laughs) often he would perform some big miracle and then he would say to people, you know, don't tell anybody about this. <laughs> you know, he was right. trying to keep it secret, which again is just so counterintuitive to what we would do today. But but there are five circles of influence that I think are well illustrated by his life. And whether you're a Christian or not, these would serve you well to follow. So number one is that he led himself. And this is where all leadership starts. Hmm. Self-leadership precedes team leadership, and public influence. If you can't lead yourself, you shouldn't and can't lead others. This is why Jesus, for example, paid special attention to his interior life. You know, he was self-aware. He departed to lonely places to just be quiet and pray. He battled the devil, you know, to prove his character. And he knew that his character or his identity was essential to his public effectiveness. Mm. So he spent time kind of in his own skin. And I think a lot of leaders today get uncomfortable with themselves. You know, they don't know what to do with themselves unless they're just, you know, busy, 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 doing, doing, doing. And we forget sometimes that we're we're a human being first and a human doing second. Mm. And so we can't confuse those. That being and that doing side are both important. I'm not dismissing the doing side, but the being side precedes the doing and the being side is the foundation of the doing side. So we've got to learn to lead ourselves first. Can we do that? Yeah. And I, I, I mean, it's interesting. Like you can even see by the diagrams that people draw that we sometimes get our head wrapped around this concept in the wrong way, because I've seen it drawn this way before and heard it taught this way before that there's stages and steps to influence. And the first step is of course, lead yourself. But we kind of paint this idea that you finish that step. And, and once you finish that step, then you can focus on leading the team. And it's like, okay, now I've effectively led myself. Alex is now under control and now he can focus on leading path for growth. And I'll tell you, I'm learning this in real time right now, Michael. I still got to lead Alex every morning when he wakes up and looks in the mirror. And and it's, I mean, like, I'm also learning that it never gets easier. If anything, it gets harder to make the guy in the mirror do what you actually want him to do. So can you speak a little bit to just the ongoing nature of this as you've learned kind of over the course of your life? Yeah, you got to realize that you're a work in process, that you are a lifetime project. You'll never be done. And in fact, even in the next life, if my theology is correct, I think we'll continue to grow and continue to progress even in the next life. You know, if we're finite and God's infinite, we're always going to be moving toward that. There's always more to learn, more to take on. Mm. But the reason that this is so important, Alex, is because of the law of replication. And what that means is that who we are in our essence is going to be replicated in the lives of the people that we lead, for good or for bad. Mm. Our best qualities are going to be replicated. Our worst qualities are going to be replicated. I grew up with a dad who was a Korean War veteran, and he was injured almost fatally in the Korean War. Interestingly, 
He signed up for the Marine Corps when he was 17 years old. His parents had to co-sign just for him to get in. He had just turned 18. He was in Korea and he got hit with some shrapnel from a bomb. And so he was in a coma for six months. It affected him neurologically. He had all this nerve damage. And for his entire life, and he's still alive today, he's 87 years old, he's walked with a severe limp. Hmm. Was a little boy who wanted to grow up to be big, who admired the adults in my life, and my dad was the most important adult in my life, I looked to him, and I unconsciously began to imitate his limp. And my mom came to me when I was about four years old, and she said, Michael, you don't need to limp. Your dad <laughs> limps because he was hurt in the war. But that's always stuck with me as an example of what it looks like to replicate yourself in the life of another person. And again, it's unconscious. It happens automatically. And that's why as leaders, it's critically important that we pay attention to the prototype. We are the prototype. You know, we're the, we're the ones that are going to have an impact on the people that are, that are following us. So if we make excuses for ourselves, if we allow ourselves, you know, to have some deficiency in our character, and, and I get it, we're, none of us are perfect. We're all growing. We're all struggling to be all that God's created us to be. But if we excuse that, and if we don't deal with it, it's going to show up not just in our life, but in the lives of the people that we're trying to lead. Larry Bossidy said this, culture is nothing more than the behavior of an organization's leaders. Mm. And the good news about that is, is you can change your culture by changing the behavior of the organizational leaders. So if you're the CEO or you're the pastor or you're the top dog, it begins with you. The buck stops with you. What is the most practical habit or rhythm that you have in your life that just makes sure that this self-leadership piece stays front of mind and it doesn't just get away from you or it's not something that you're not attending to or focusing on, Michael? That's a great question, Alex. I think more than anything, you've got to have margin in your life. You've got to have room for reflection. You just can't be careening from one event to the next with no thought for the trajectory of where you're going or kind of the condition of how you are at, at any given point. I, I really believe that the biggest asset every leader has is their heart. But if you're not in touch with your heart and the condition of your heart, it's very easy for it to become numb or dead. And we have a lot of leaders today that, you know, that medicate or numb out because they don't want to face that inner life because it's mm. chaos. Gordon McDonald wrote a book years ago called Ordering Your Private World. And it's, it's a great book. And the reason it's important to order our private world is because it ultimately manifests itself in the external world. So I think, for example, your daily habits, like your morning ritual, crucially important. So one of the things I do is I, I begin every day by reading in the scriptures, by praying, and by journaling, and by meditating. Mm. Then I go to the gym and work out. But I have that, that private time, that time for me, that time when I can reflect, that time when I can evaluate, that time when I can be grateful, that time when I can order my private world so that I can go about my work in the world. Does that make mm. sense? Oh, absolutely. And I and I love that we're using Jesus as the guy that we're kind of looking at as a template here too, because I, I think for myself, sometimes I can start thinking, oh, well, other people need me to to be engaged earlier in the morning, or they need me to to be with people more often. So I don't have time to do those things like you're talking about. And in reality, if anyone was needed by people, it was it was Jesus, right? I mean, this guy was literally healing people of disease, is is what what the Bible tells us. And and he still made time to be by himself. So what a powerful example. Okay, so so circle one of these circles of influence where that he led himself. What's what's the next circle, Michael? Number two is that he confided in the three. So Jesus had an inner circle. Hmm. And his inner circle, according to the Bible, 
was Peter, James, and John. He, he did for them what he didn't do for the 12. And so you have to read carefully in the New Testament to see this, but he took them on special outings. Like, for example, they got to witness the transfiguration. You know, when he was glorified on earth and had this conversation with Elijah and Moses. He, he allowed them to witness his greatest glory. He shared with them his deepest temptation. So right before he was crucified in the garden, who did he take with him? Peter, James, and John. He prayed with them. He taught them things that he didn't teach the others. He even introduced them to his heavenly family. They were his closest friends and his confidence. Now, what does that mean for us? We have got to have close friends, confidence, people with whom we can take down the mask, we can set aside the public persona, and we can just be our authentic selves. I remember after I became the CEO of Thomas Nelson Publishers, John Maxwell, who had by that time become a dear friend of mine, I was his publisher, he called me on the phone. I mean, literally the day I was named the CEO. And he said, he said, you probably heard that it's lonely at the top. And I said, yeah, I've heard that. And he said, I want you to know that's a choice. It doesn't have to be lonely at the top. And he was absolutely right. The worst thing you can do as a leader is be isolated. Yeah, you have to lead yourself. It has to start with you. But that's not an excuse for isolation. In fact, isolation is the worst thing you can do as a leader. You've got to have peers. And when I say peers, don't confuse your working relationships with the kind of friendship I'm talking about here. I'm not saying you can't be friends with people at work. But one of the things that I've noticed is that as I've left companies, because of the lack of proximity, those friendships typically at least get ratcheted down a couple notches or completely disappear. Mm. You know, when I left Thomas Nelson, there were people that I was working with seeing, you know, 40 hours a week. Never heard from them again. Mm. And, it, and it was nobody's fault. There was no malice. It was just a lack of proximity, right? So one of the things that I did when I became the CEO of Thomas Nelson Publishers is I found two other public company CEOs here in Nashville, Tennessee, and I would meet with them on a quarterly basis. And they were also running public companies. And we all, we, all three of us, we just get together, we'd have lunch, we'd let down our hair and we'd pick a topic and we'd just be real with each other. And I really think, and I, this was, you know, about the time of the great recession. I think that was one of the things that got me through that period was having those close confidence, people that I could be genuine and authentic with. Hmm. That's powerful. And I love the fact that that I think too, there's value to having people that you can verbally process things with that aren't that you aren't paying or that you aren't responsible yes. for keeping a job. And and it seems like that's what you're talking about there. It's like, man, I can I can tell you this and know that you're holding that and and also know that your your future has nothing to do with the way I respond and react in this situation. That's powerful. What what you said there, Alex, is key. Because if you're not careful, you surround yourself with people that always have something to gain by how you respond or something to lose hmm. by how you respond. And you've got to have people that are your closest confidence that don't have that motive, that they only want what is best for you. And again, there's nothing to gain for them or to lose for them. Hmm. Powerful. And I love too, that you highlighted the fact that Jesus, like he was showing, he, I mean, transfiguration, he was showing people his glory. So it's, it's like, these are also people sometimes that you can say, this is going really well right now. And yes. you trust them enough to know they're not going to look at you and be jealous or, or say, man, that Michael, he's so arrogant. It's, they're going to celebrate with you and give you a pat on the back. And that's, that's called a friend, right? Like that's a really good person to be around. That's right. And you, you don't want to have people that you have to shield your glory, mm. you know, that you can't, you can't share the upside of your life. And certainly our lives are a mix of things. You know, there's the positive things and the negative things, but Jesus was able to share both of those. 
Mm. You know, his own, if you will, in the garden when he was facing the crucifixion, you know, a really difficult, unbelievably challenging time. He was able to share that, but he was also able to share his glory. And that's what you want in a friendship like that. So let himself confided in the three. What's, what's the next circle of influence? Yeah. The next one is he trained the 12. Okay. This is key for leaders to do. Who are the 12, you know, 10, nine. I don't think the number is so significant. Although I will say if Jesus was the son of God, for those of you that are Christians and his span of control was about 12, that's probably, yours is probably not going to exceed that. <laughs> it's probably not going to be 13. You know? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So I, you know, I'd stick on this side of 12, but he chose 12 disciples. And this is the key thing, not to enroll in a course, not to take a master class, not to attend a webinar, not to attend a one week retreat. No, Mark 3.14 says that he chose the 12 that they might be, get this, this is the strategy right here, with him. So these were 12 guys that he was doing life with on a regular basis. He taught them. He gave them assignments. However, he also shared with them his daily living because discipleship or transformation, if we want to use kind of a maybe more modern word, it's more caught than taught. Mm. You know, it's, it's not what he said or what he taught publicly that had the greatest influence on them, but how he did life. Like, you know, to go back to John Maxwell for a moment, you know, John has taught on generosity. John is one of the most generous people I know. But being with John and seeing his generosity in action is amazing. You know, I learned more about generosity from being with John than hearing John teach about generosity. Mm. You know, times when, you know, I remember one time we were playing golf, a foursome and a scramble. And he, and we had some college kids that were acting as our four caddies. So there were two guys and John said, Hey, look guys, I want you all to pony up 200 bucks. We're going to bless these kids with an enormous tip. And he said, if you don't have $200, no problem. I'll loan it to you, but we're going to tip these guys, all four of us, $200. I love that. <laughs> and John is just generous like that. But again, that's something that is caught more than taught. And the apostle Paul years later would express it this way in first Thessalonians two, eight, he said he poured into the Thessalonians his very life. Hmm. And because of this, Jesus entrusted his disciples with power to do the work he himself had done. In fact, he promised them that they would actually do greater works. But again, it wasn't a formal thing. It was an informal thing. It was just, you know, hanging with the boys, hanging with, with, with the people that, that he had hand-selected to be his disciples. Hmm. Ever since I heard you talk about this, that phrase with him, that they may be with him has just stood out to me so much. Can you dive into a little bit? What does that phrase with him, that they might be with him, what does that mean for the leader's pace? If that's, if that's something we're striving for. Yeah. Well, one of the things it means is that if you're guilty of overwork and most people are, you know, eight out of 10 business people say that they're work, working too hard and experiencing work-related stress. And all that's in my new book, When at Work and Succeed at Life, yeah. Five Principles to Free Yourself from the Cult of Overwork. But if you're in that situation where you're overworking, guess what? You're going to replicate that in the life of the people that you're leading. So I once had a CFO for our company who was in his 50s. All his kids were grown out of the house. He was an empty nester. So he would quit work typically at 8 p.m. And I went to him at one point and I said, I'll call him Fred. And I said, Fred, I said, here's the problem. I get that 
you know, this is okay that you're apparently you and your wife have a pact and this is okay for you to work all the time, but look at your team. You have a team of young parents. Mm. If they keep up with you, they're going to be sacrificing their families, their kids' futures. And I could never get through to him to dial it back. And, you know, I regret that. Probably should have fired him. But he had a, a detrimental impact because despite the fact that he would say to his team, I don't expect you to keep up with me. The underlying, more powerful message was, this is what I'm doing. This is what I expect of you. Sadly, that same guy went through divorce two years ago. So apparently it wasn't all right with his family. So again, that when you, when you take the within principle, it means you've got to take seriously your own life, your own behavior, because it's going to manifest itself. It's going to show up in the lives of other people. You know, it's, it's no wonder that people who grow up in an alcoholic home have a greater tendency to become alcoholics themselves. And that's, you know, a very obvious kind of detrimental behavior, but there's lots of behaviors like that that show up. And so that's why we got to be particularly careful. Now, on a positive note, the within principle says that we just, just hanging out is valuable all by itself. Mm. We shouldn't be going to places when we could take somebody with us. You know, I've always had the habit of when I travel, try to take somebody along with me because I know there's opportunities, whether it's them observing how I respond when I get in frustrating situations or how I treat, you know, people that, you know, that I interact with on a daily basis, you know, all that stuff's important for people to see, because again, more is caught than taught. Mm. I, I mean, I know you're friends with Dave Ramsey and I, I obviously was working with him prior to starting this business. And whenever they built that new building, they, they valued this principle of just being with each other and the creativity that comes with that. And so one of the things that they said is like, we are going to eat lunch together, right? Like we, we have this incredible space to eat lunch. We are going to eat lunch together. And it was so cool that most days of the week, he'd be down there eating lunch with everyone. And he just pop, you know, this, this That's so cool. CEO of this massive company would just choose a table and just hang out. Right. And, and I think, you know, it did something for the people he sat down with, obviously, but it also did something for everyone else in the room that looked and watched as Dave just hung out and had lunch. And I think there's so much value to that. And I think it relates to what you're talking about. Okay. Let himself confide in the three, train the 12. What's the next stage here that we should be taking note of? He mobilized the 70. Hmm. So there was this group of 70 that he had. Jesus had this smaller, more intimate group to whom he gave specific assignments. He sent them out. If you remember the gospel account, he sent them out two by two. He asked for a big, big commitment. He gave them virtually no resources. You know, he <laughs> said, just basically take one change of clothes. That's it. And oh, by the way, while you're at it, perform a few miracles. He told him to expect opposition. He promised them no earthly reward. And he evaluated them when they would return from the assignment. And so, again, I think that's another key thing. Who are the 70? You know, and again, the number's not important, but there's a wider circle beyond the 12 before your inner circle of people that you're training or mobilizing for specific assignments. And, and by the way, this pattern of Jesus is a recapitulation of the life of Moses. Because Moses, if you look at Moses, he had the same pattern. Hmm. You know, he had the three. He had Aaron. He had Miriam. Then he had, you know, beyond that, he had the 12 elders of the 12 tribes. And then he had this group of 70, this group of judges, because his father-in-law came to him and said, buddy, what are you thinking? You're going to wear yourself out because Moses was sitting with the entire congregation of Israel trying to render judgments on the most, you know, the smallest issues. And his father-in-law saw what was happening and said to him, this is not good. It's not sustainable. You're going to wear yourself out. You're going to destroy yourself. 
And so he said, you need to appoint judges, judges of tens, judges of a hundreds, judges of a thousands, so that you've got some kind of order and having people to help you do the work. And I, th- and I see a lot of, again, leaders, whether they're in churches or in business organizations that try to do it all. Mm-hmm. And not only will this keep you from scaling, you know, kind of to put it in the modern context, but it'll kill you. You know, trying to do it all yourself, you're just setting yourself up for, you know, a health crisis, a relational crisis, or something else. You've got to be willing to build a team. You've got to give them the authority. You've got to give them assignments. And certainly, you can evaluate the work that they do, but you've got to delegate. And delegation is critically important if we're going to have the maximum impact that we want to have. So there's a couple things that stand out at this stage. The first one being that with the 12, with the three, the 12 and the 70, I, I, if there is this verse, I certainly haven't read it where it says they submitted their resume to Jesus and he reviewed it and then said, you're one of the 70, welcome to the team. And it seems like for most of these people, if they did submit the resume, they're not exactly the type of people you would think, oh man, what a killer resume this guy has. And so what, like, what do you think it was that we can take from or learn from that Jesus was looking for, for the people that were going to be part of this, I mean, world changing mission at the ground floor? You know, I think he was, he was looking for people that were humble, hungry, and, and willing to change. You know, it's interesting because in many of the cases, when he calls these disciples, they immediately followed him. You know, they they dropped their nets if they were fishermen. They walked away from their tax collection booth if they were a tax collector. But they stopped what they were doing. They were eager and ready for a change. And I think too often we look at resumes when we need to be looking at character. And it's, mm. you know, to be fair, it's not either or. You know, you'd like to have it all. But character is the fundamental thing. And that kind of connects to the other point based on something you said with regard to the 70. It's it's fair to say that the parallel here with the 70 is either your circle of influence or it could also be your direct team if you're a business owner, business leader. And one of the things that you highlight is, is that the expectations that he set for this, these guys and these women, I mean, it was not, it was not sugarcoating anything, right? And I think so often today, when we look for people to join our team, we only market the benefits and we say, we have a, we have a ping pong table and we have remote work. And I mean, you of all people, Michael, like, I mean, y'all offer this incredible work culture, this incredible work environment. But my assumption is that you you can't only market the incredible work environment and the benefits of getting to be a part of your your project, your business, or in Jesus's case, that mission. You also have to be hyper realistic about the work to be done. You do, and and counterintuitively, when you are, that draws the right kind of people. Mm. Uh, there was a book written back in the '60s called Leadership and Dedication. I can't remember who the the author was, but it compares the recruitment methodology of the communists versus the recruitment methodology of modern Christians. And it is sobering because basically when the communists were recruiting people, they were saying, look, you're going to be spat upon. You're going to be, you know, disregarded. You're going to be attacked, all this stuff. But people were willing to give their lives to that because they believed in the cause. Now, you know, obviously I don't believe in that cause. I don't believe it was right. But I'm saying that that attracted a certain kind of person. Meanwhile, he says, here are these modern Christians trying to make it sound like it's not going to cost you anything. You know, it's going to be easy. We're going to pamper you. We're going to cater to you. We're going to make it super easy for you to participate. And one of the unique experiences I had when I was a freshman at Baylor University is I had some guys approach me and ask me, I just only been a Christian for a few months. And they said, we'd like you to consider joining our Bible study. Now I'm a student. Okay. So I'm like 19 years old. They said, our Bible study meets at 5 a.m. on Thursday morning. <laughs> I was like, 5 a.m. Are you kidding me? I said, yeah, 5 a.m. If you want to be part of it, that's when we meet. 
Well, there was something about that that ignited my imagination and called for something from me. And I was a member of that Bible study for a couple of years and I loved it. But there was a genius to why they did it that early. They only wanted people that were committed. Could they made it a more convenient time? Yeah. But I think they would have robbed it of some of the power. Yeah. And and so it seems like be hyper clear about the power and the mission and the possibility for transformation at your workplace with regard to the project that you're working on, or in this case, with regard to to the impact that you're trying to make in the world. But don't don't at all sugarcoat the work that it's going to be required of. of That's them. right. So powerful. Okay. So let's review them again. Let himself combine it in the three, train the 12, mobilize the seven. And then what's this final circle of influence? Yeah. So he taught the multitudes. Now, most of us want to start here, but this was the final circle. If you're running a business, I think of this as people outside the business. If you're in a church, this could be people outside the church. It might even be the church, but Jesus had a public ministry. He occasionally spoke to thousands. However, he didn't pander to these groups. He didn't tickle their ears. He confronted the status quo. He jarred his listeners' sensibilities. He often taught in parables, which had to be maddening. And interestingly enough, he didn't feel the need to clarify everything. He often left his audience confused, wondering what he meant, because the goal was apparently to shift their paradigm and to force them to think. And I don't think we're very good as leaders in doing that today. You know, we we get tempted into making things so super simple and so easy that it doesn't require anything of the listener. And I think that, you know, to provoke people to really think, to challenge the status quo, to think through their own lives and values, that requires a different way of, of reaching the multitudes. And, and so, yeah, so that's the final, final circle of influence. Well, and I think you shared with me this, this floored me whenever you said it is he shared something like 307 questions in the new Testament. Jesus asked 307 questions and then only answered like three of them. I mean, can you explain, because I think that connects to getting to the idea of getting people to think for, for themselves and getting people to think on their own and shifting status quo. Can you explain the role of curiosity and questions in, in leadership? Yeah. So when I was a young leader, I used to think it was all about having the answers. Mm -hmm. You know, I felt a lot of pressure, to be honest. When I was, I was in my first few management jobs, I felt a lot of pressure to have all the answers. And so I would typically go into a meeting and I would start talking and I wouldn't shut up because I thought I had to be the answer guy. You know, everybody else is sitting around the table to, to hear from me, you know, spouting, you know, from the font of wisdom. But the older I got, the more mature I got, I realized it wasn't about having the answers at all. It was really about having the right questions. And Jesus would ask questions for which I think he was generally curious, but also to provoke the other person to drill deep and to figure out what they wanted. One of my favorite questions that he asked, he asked it three times in the Gospels, three different occasions. He asked people, what do you want me to do for you? Well, I mean, it's amazing. <laughs> you know, and, and part of it is we have to figure out to answer that question, what do we want? And I find that that's one of the most difficult questions of all to answer. And yet it's vital that we do so. But Jesus would answer that question and wait for a response. What do you want me to do? And it was in, in situations where the answer probably was obvious, like he's talking to a blind guy or he's talking to a leper. And you would think, you know, it'd be easy for them to just say, well, I want to be healed. You, you can see that I'm blind, right? I want to be able to see. Or I want this leprosy, this scourge to be lifted from me. This thing that's socially ostracized me. But no, we ask him. And he made the ponder it for a few minutes and then respond. And I mm -hmm. think, especially as I become a business coach, you know, it's, it's really about the questions that I ask my clients. And then just sitting back. And by the way, 
not trying to lead them to a predetermined answer, but to be genuinely curious, curious and let them explore and discover. And that comes through good question asking. Mm. Have you read Seth Godin's newest book, The Practice, Michael? I have not. I, uh, it's on my list, but I haven't read it yet. Yeah, pretty remarkable book. I mean, everything he writes makes me question whether or not he's actually from Earth or if he's an alien from somewhere else because he's so <laughs> so freaking smart. But one of the things that he talks about, and I think it's related here, is he talks about whenever you actually clarify a vision or something that you want to do that's specific, well, then you're a little bit up a creek because then you're on the hook for it. And it's like, as long as you're living in generality or expecting other people to serve you without you clarifying what you actually want, you're not on the hook for anything. But he says, man, when you clarify what you want, most people don't do that because then they know they're, they're on the hook for action. And they, yeah. and they know that a lot of times they know the answer, right? In the case of, in the case of the, the lame man, it was like, Jesus told him, get up, like <laughs> stand now. It's like he had to put some skin in the game too. So I, I love that concept that as we're kind of wrapping up, cause I know we're getting close to time. I, I would love to know when this concept for you, the five circles of influence, and I know the way you draw it is concentric circles from the end of leading yourself to right. out. When did it go from being a, a theoretical concept for you of like, okay, that's nice to becoming like real and active in your life. And what, what initiated that transformation for you? Well, I think it first started about 20 years ago hmm. when I had this encounter with my wife, Gail, and I thought I, I was so successful. I had turned around this division at Thomas Nelson Publishers. I wasn't the CEO at that point. I was just a general manager. I turned around this division and we went from number 14 in the company, the four, one of 14 divisions. We went from number 14 in terms of growth rate and in terms of profitability to number one. And, and we were able to do it about 18 months. And I got the biggest bonus check I'd ever gotten. So I was, you know, pounding my chest and feeling great about what I'd accomplished. And I went home to, to show it to Gail, knowing that she would be elated that all her sacrifice for my career, all my sacrifice for my career was going to make it worth it. And I showed her this check, which by the way, was bigger than my annual salary. And she was kind of nonplussed by it. She kind of looked at it and didn't say much. And she said, we need to talk. And I kind of felt that twinge in my chest, like, uh-oh. Mm. So we walked into the den, we sat down and she began to tear up. And she said, you know, I love you. And I appreciate all that you've done on behalf of our family. But she said, I've got to be honest with you. She said, you're never home. And she said, even when you are, you're not really here. Well, that was kind of like a dagger to the heart. Mm. And she said, your five girls need you now more than ever. And then she began to cry, full on cry. And she just said, honestly, I feel like a single mom. And Alex, I thought I'd reached the pinnacle of success. But what I realized was that it was a false summit. Mm. And it was incredibly jarring. It, it kind of upset the apple cart and I had to redefine success and say, okay, if this isn't success, then what is it? If I lose my wife and my kids, you know, my five beautiful daughters, if I lose them and if I end up divorced or if I end up with my kids not speaking to me or I go through a health crisis, you know, none of that is worth this. And so that was the first time I began to think, I, I've, I've got to re, reorient my life around something else. Hmm. I've got to figure this out. And that's when I hired an executive coach and when I got really serious about self-leadership and about creating margin in my life. And it wasn't, it wasn't something that happened overnight. It took years. But I think it, it was critically important. And Gail and I have been married for 43 years this summer. Congratulations. This coming summer. And I have five grown daughters. I have nine grandkids. And thankfully, by the grace of God, they love me. They all live within about two miles of my house. Mm. All my grandkids do. I have one daughter that lives a little bit further away, but they're, but they're all within 20 miles. 
And it's amazing. It's astonishing to me that they still want to spend time with me. But I don't think that would have happened if I hadn't had that wake-up call 20 years ago and, and began to course correct and really ask myself the question, what does real leadership look like? And I fear for a lot of leaders today who go first to social media because I don't think the human frame was built for fame. I think mm. fame can be very destructive. Fame promises a lot, but delivers very little. And I think if that's your model of leadership, if you want to be a quote, social media influencer, you know, woe be to you. Mm. There may be a little, there may be little immediate upside or some immediate upside, but what it's likely going to cost you in the long term is going to be devastating. And you won't realize it to, until it's too late. Michael, I so appreciate your perspective. I, I so appreciate having you in my life as a role model to look at just because every time I, in this conversation, but also just in spending time with you, I, I feel like I leave with a better picture of what healthy growth actually looks like. Mm -hmm. and, and just the idea that, that healthy growth isn't guaranteed you can be growing and not be healthy, but it is absolutely possible. And it's so cool to see the path that you've walked to get to that point. And I also, I honestly didn't draw the connection of this conversation that we decided to have about the leadership strategy of Jesus and it, the newest book that you wrote with your daughter, Megan. But I feel like the, the two topics are so intertwined. So we're absolutely going to put the link to that book in the show notes. And anything else you would share with people with regard to what they should take advantage of with that or with regard to what they should be thinking of in that sphere of winning at work and life? Yeah, I would just say that, you know, this, this book really is an important book from my perspective mm. because it's so countercultural. When so many entrepreneurs, so many celebrity pastors are exhorting people to hustle more, work harder, I think, I think what, they're, what they're losing or what they're missing is that time for reflection. Mm. That time to build out your life and attend to all the other areas of your life. Because, yeah, work's important. And, man, I do want to win at work. But not I don't want to sacrifice, you know, my personal health, my most important relationships on the altar of my ambition. Mm. That's a point at which work becomes idolatry. And that's exactly what we speak to in the book. So if you want to free yourself from the cult of overwork, and develop a sustainable, long-term plan for a life well-lived, this is the book for you. Mm. Game on. I love it. So we are going to lead ourselves. We're going to confide in the three. We're going to train the 12. We're going to mobilize the 70. And then we're going to teach and feed the multitudes. Michael, thanks so much for this message. But perhaps more important, thank you for being someone that lives in alignment with the message that you give. I so appreciate you. Thanks, Alex. Great to be on. Man. It's just so inspirational to think about this guy that we a lot of times talk about named Jesus. He's not just this mythological, mystic character. He was a person that has lasting influence and impact today. And it wasn't because he tried to reach the millions or certainly the billions in his time on earth. It was because he focused on the three and then the 12 and then the 70. Every time I spend time with Michael, I just find myself leaving grateful that he is a man that is committed to living what he teaches. And I mean, specifically living what he teaches in this conversation today, because I have benefited so much from the fact that he is committed to investing in relationship with others to investing in relationship with people that on paper probably have nothing to add to him, right? I mean, think about the fact that he agrees to have lunch with me. And I mean, on paper, you could look at Path for Growth. And although we're just a speck in the side window, he is willing to invest and pour into me and ask me questions and let me ask him a bunch of questions about what he's learned in building his business. And that is such a gift. And what I always leave with after we spend time together is this passion and this desire to do the same for other people. And I hope that's how you're leaving this conversation as well, is you're thinking intentionally about who are my three, 
and who are my 12 and who are my 70. There are people in your sphere right now that would gain and benefit so much from you intentionally pouring yourself out. And don't just let yourself off the hook by saying, I'm going to do that for everybody. Be specific. Who are the people that are in your damage path, to use a Brian Miles quote, that you want to specifically and deliberately and purposefully pour into? That's what I'm going to challenge you with on the backside of today's episode. Well, thank you so much for listening. We're going to put all the resources that we talked about with Michael in the show notes of this episode. We'll also put the link to the blog post that kind of details everything that we talked about today and even goes a little bit further on some of these topics. The final thing that I want to let y'all know is that every Wednesday we send out an email that we say is worth it Wednesday because most emails aren't worth it. So we want to send out one that is every Wednesday. Someone from our team writes a principle worth learning, a question worth answering, and then a recommendation worth taking. Now, sometimes that's a podcast recommendation. Sometimes it's a salsa recommendation or an ice cream recommendation. Sometimes it's a movie recommendation, but I'm so grateful the fact that y'all have responded to this the way that you have because we're just having an absolute blast writing these emails. So thanks for reading them. If you're on the list, if you're not on the list, you can sign up on the link that's in the show notes. Remember, we're rooting for you. We want to see you win, not just in the future, but today. My strength is not for me. Your strength is not for you. Our strength is for service. Let's go. Let's go. Let's go. Let's go.